I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Sick Boy, a podcast where we talk about what it's like to be sick. This week's guest is Dan. He had a traumatic brain injury. Let's talk about it. Uh, well, we are in for a treat, Brian. Uh, we are sitting down with Dan, and uh, Dan's got a Dan's got a Dan's got one of those stories that I feel like the start of this story is like is the type of story that kind of like that kind of like like plants a seed of like a little bit of uneasy fear in the minds of people who sometimes like have those slight hypochondria type like you know tendencies like you brian i feel like <laughs> you're gonna hear this and you're gonna go fuck you know what, next you know what's so sad is the amount of people who just stopped listening to oh, this yeah. podcast because of <laughs> what like, you just said i don't want i'm so, I'm, I'm checking out i just want to say if you if you were thinking about pausing or stopping because of what jared just said i i i i'm let's do this together well hey you how about I, this the listener, this? you and i the listener before we'll before you check out just know that I think by the if you stick with it and you come to the end of this episode, you're gonna feel like you've got a newfound respect for the word resiliency. So how about that? All right, so it might be worth it. Uh, let us introduce our guest today, Dan. Dan, thank you so much for joining us. Um, it's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Who is who is Dan, and and uh, and what is it that brought you here to uh, to Sick Boy Podcast? Well, guys, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Really appreciate that. Who is Dan? Ooh, that's a deep question. Uh, Dan is a traumatic brain injury survivor, world traveler, perennial, I wouldn't say troublemaker, but a bit mischievous, you could say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm full send on becoming a speaker. I'm speaking now and trying to get my name out there and profile up there. So it's it all kind of ties in nicely with this. And matter of fact, I was emailing someone today who introduced me to your podcast a couple of years ago. And I tied that back into the email thread being like, oh, that podcast you recommended, I'm on that podcast today, which is pretty cool. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's so cool. I love that. That's very cool. Nice full circle uh, little story there. Uh, Dan, first of all, congratulations on like on entering the speaking world. And it's like, that's hard work. It's a hard thing. It's a hard grind to like get yourself out there. Um, but uh, the part that really like piqued my interest there was the traumatic brain injury survivor. And uh Again, I, you know, I mentioned it earlier. There's, there, you've got, you've got a really interesting story. A story that like, kind of, kind of lifts the hairs on the back of my neck. Um, would you, would you be so kind as to like walk us through uh, Dan uh, when he was 28 and and the history of like kind of what happened to you? Yeah, for sure. So Dan, 28, was living in London, England, jolly old. Uh, he was having big nights out, restaurants, cafes, living in London, ripping it up, having a good time. He was having these headaches that got pretty bad. And they got to the point where, like, I was taking painkillers like candy for them. Now, the headaches would get so bad, my vision would turn spotty or sometimes just go black. Wow. Like, blinding headaches. 
Like, is, that, is, that considered, is that considered a migraine? Like, like, what, like, would you, uh, I mean, did you, did anyone tell you like, oh, you're having migraines or did you, or did you have the, like the notion to think like, fuck these, like I keep getting these migraines or what's the difference? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. To be honest, I wasn't sure. Like I went to Annie twice uh, and they thought it was vertigo and they sent me home. So like they weren't sure what it was either, but I knew that something was wrong because on the tube one day I was picking up a, a, a microwave from Notting Hill and my vision went black, like just black for like two minutes, three minutes. Like I couldn't see anything. I'm like, this is, this is fucked, man. This is not good at all. And, uh, I got like, I weighed out like on the platform and my vision came back. I'm like, okay, this is, this is kind of bad. I get this checked out. Whoa. Went to Annie the second time. What is Annie? Is it test, like a hospital? And they were like, you know what? Sorry. Is a and is that a hospital? Is uh, uh, yeah, sorry. Annie is accident and emergency in the UK. Oh, okay. Like okay. ER. okay. Got you. Got you. It is lingo here. If, if I go too quickly or skip over that, please let me know. But they thought it was vertigo and they sent me home. But they told me as I was leaving, I get my eyes checked in an optometrist. Because they can, the, the brain, the eyes are an extension of the brain, right? So they can look into the eyes and see if there's a problem there. So I was in the middle of the exam when the optometrist stopped the exam. Full stop. Mr. Patel stopped the exam. Like, okay, this is not a casual move. And he goes to the back and writes on this envelope and hands me a sealed envelope and tells me to go directly to Moorfields Hospital which I sort of did. I stopped at home first to grab a Jack Reacher book by Lee Child, a bite to eat, and I figured a phone charge would be helpful as well. But I was determined to get this resolved because the headaches were so bad. So they ran the same tests at Moorfields Hospital than an Escondido Charing Cross Hospital. It turns out I had a dangerous build of pressure in my brain caused from a non-cancerous cyst. Whoa. It turns out I required emergency brain surgery. Turns out my world's about to change altogether. So I rallied the folks in Canada, like threw up the bad signal, like, hey, guess what? I'm having brain surgery tomorrow, just so you know. And my mom, you know, was on the next flight over to London. And I ended up going to the operating table while she was flying to London. On the operating table, I had a brain hemorrhage, they think. They think the cyst burst when they operated whoa okay so like so okay 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 <laughs> let me just let me let me just pull back here so so you've you've got you've got a assist on your brain that's causing this amount of pressure that amount of pressure was so like obvious that the optometrist in, like basically immediately saw like this is fucked up there's something like outside of my scope you need to go to a hospital and in the midst of the surgery for the removal of that cyst, you had a brain hemorrhage. Correct. Yeah. And, so and that was like unexpected. Was, that wasn't like they weren't. That wasn't. They weren't expecting that to happen. And also, they, the optometrist to the being on the oper, operating room table right, was like, like twenty four hours. hours. Uh, probably left. Probably about twelve hours. Holy Whoa. fuck, dude! So maybe maybe not twelve. Maybe sixteen. Yeah. But it was Regardless. a quick turnaround. So what yeah. had happened was when they do the eye test, they like look in your eyes, right? And you could see a massive inflammation of like my eyes, like so much. So these like, there's something in his brain that's causing this pressure. Wow. The growth was in the pineal gland, which is in your brain and, it, and a, the, the fluid drains in there, but the growth blocked the drainage. So it would build up this pressure to the point where it was so insane that it would block my vision at times. So yeah, I kind of went zero to 60 in like pretty quick order of business here. Mm -hmm. Wow. 
Mid. I mean, like, I just want to say, yeah. I just want to say because a lot Jerry, to there. Jerry, you started this by saying, if you're a hypochondriac, then, uh, then like this might scare <laughs> so, you. As soon as you get and, a headache, Brian, you're and, gonna... <laughs> well, you know, what's interesting about this is, is, um, I went to the ER yeah. like four months ago because I was having this weird vision thing. Right, and right. um my vision went really blurry and i had this like aura and it was also i should say that it was in the midst of like a high stress period in my life and also i was like fully dehydrated and had not not been drinking enough water but i went in and and like the it was so long to get into the er here that i just sort of went home um but like i mean i didn't my vision didn't black out but like the thought of that scares the shit out of yeah, me. Like yeah. the thought of that is the thought of imagining myself in your shoes and going yeah. through that so quickly is incredibly terrifying. I, I mean, before we like continue on with, with what happened, I, I am kind of curious about, you know, just because of the, just because of the rapid nature of this, you know, like let's say it is 16 hours, right? Um, one moment you are on a, you're on uh, the tube for folks that uh, aren't familiar, the tube is, uh, I believe, is a colloquial term for the subway over there. Correct. In Correct. Um, so you're on the tube and and you're like, you know, there's like an annoyance, probably a little bit more than an annoyance at this point, like a bit of a, an alarming annoyance that you have such headaches that are like, you know, blinding your vision. And you go to, you go to like get that resolved, like, which is, you know, first of all, kudos to you. Good job. Like we just, we literally just covered a, a t- an article the other day about men, like, of uh, you know, the statistics of men avoiding hospital visits. And so doing what I did, doing what you did. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so, um, you go, you go to like this optometrist going from there to like all of a sudden being, finding out like in a few hours, you're going to go to surgery. Do you remember like, how, how did that, how were you processing that? Like when you're reaching out to family to tell them like, were you were you terrified or was it was it all moving so quickly that you just like didn't really even have a moment to grasp the 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 gravity of the situation? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I call I called my brother and he said, "Yeah, you were super chill about the whole thing." And I was like, "Yeah." It was very very intentionally chill. Like I didn't want to let on that I was scared. I don't know why. I just didn't want to show like a you're going in for brain surgery, right? This could be the curtains, right? So I figured like let's not go out like a wimpering punk got the last text message that i use in my speaking presentations it goes i'll see you soon mom i think i'll have a new haircut next time i see you love dan <laughs> and that message is is like pretty coy a bit cheeky a bit you know i'm hiding and masking a lot of pain and insecurity like i was terrified but i was very aware this could be the last message i write so let's not go out like a whimpering puck but let's have a bit of pizzazz <laughs> but a bang like let's let's make a message of, of of memories here. Right. So I wrote that message instead. And like, if it wasn't so coy and cool, I probably wouldn't show it around, but I, I think it's kind of, it, it's a facade. I'm not, I'm not actually this cool and collected. I'm actually terrified. Brain surgery is not a casual thing. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, brain surgery is, you know, when I, when I think of brain surgery, I kind of put it up there with open heart surgery in being like, you know, th- those to me, those are the two, you know, like I, I you know, if, if if someone has never gone in for any kind of elective surgery or, or like emergency surgery, it doesn't matter what it is. If you're conscious before you go in for the surgery, there's a process where you have to like sign a waiver. Now I've had like I don't know, I've had like like probably twelve surgeries in my life. 
you know, one to like, one to fix, one to, one to uh, reconstruct my collarbone when I snapped it. But like most of them have been like for um, sinus polyps. And like, these are, these are not serious surgeries. They're, they're kind of, they, you do get put under and you're, you're in recovery for a couple of days. But like, other than that, you know, no, no huge deal. Even like my abdominal surgery, it wasn't open abdominal. It's, it's laparoscopic, right? So anyway, these surgeries, you go in and you, you always have to fill out a, a waiver, to basically say like, hey, yeah, like I give you the permission to go inside me. I also, you know, revoke the right to like sue if I die or, you know, yada, yada whatever. You're hard to sue if you're dead. It would be so hard to sue if you're dead. <laughs> you're right. But like you, ba- you basically are like signing your life away. You're going, yeah. it's like, I give you the permission to do this thing. And if, when I think of open heart surgery and I think of brain surgery, those are the two that I think give me the most anxiety about like the thought of checking off that box because like, <laughs> Really, that check mark. And I mean, it, it it could be the last thing you do. It could be the last like. There's a reason you why make, in the know? like cultural zeitgeist that like brain surgery is like people are like, well, it's not as hard as brain surgery, or like yeah, it's, it's like up there with like rocket right. science. Like yeah, it's not right. rocket science. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah, good point. Yeah, it was uh, terrifying. Like I'll be honest with you guys. Like it was. Uh, I was masking a lot with that message and like, I really thought this could be curtains and turns out if I can continue the story, is that all right with you? Guys? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Go for it. Yeah. So after the brain hemorrhage, I was in a coma for four weeks. My mom lands and finds I'm in critical condition. I was in and out of consciousness for months after this, but I was in a coma for four weeks. Uh, things were dicey, touch and go. I had to wear ice blankets above and below me to keep my core temperature down because my the brain hemorrhage had damage towards the brain that regulate blood pressure, the essential body systems I was all to whack. So I was shivering like a madman for a week to keep my core temperature down. Wow. If the, core, if the brain temperature went up below 40 degrees, you'd have brain damage. So I had to keep my core temperature down with ice blankets. And my family says it's horrible to watch. I had uh, tubes that rip out of my 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 body because there was I couldn't handle the tubes in my nose. So I did this a couple of times. I put mittens around my hands so I couldn't mm-hmm. grab them. Then eventually I'd like weasel out the, the mittens <laughs> and then rip it out. But every time I'd rip it out, they'd have to wait like two, a day and a half before they could feed me because they put the the tube down my nose to feed me. But to make sure it wasn't in my lungs, they had to do x-rays. <sighs> and when those came back, they could finally figure out it's in the stomach. We can pump it full of whatever this glucose yeah. mixture of death is like I lost a ton of weight just because I would continuously rip up this bloody core. Oh my God. The nurses Whoa. must've been and so like fucking annoyed with you. Like, I, I can't sorry? even, I said the nurses must've been so goddamn annoyed with you pulling up. So annoyed, so annoyed. <laughs> I just came out, man. I was like, well, screw this. Like I'm not dealing with this noise. Like you deal with this. <laughs> so like it was, it was, arduous, man. It's like I, I woke up finally after all was said and done. Like I finally came out of the, and out, of, and out of consciousness my mom dad and brother are sitting around the bed looking at me and they go they're talking to me and, and i'm trying to talk back but i can't because i had a tracheotomy removed and I, it took me a few weeks to get my voice back and i can't talk to them right so i'm, I'm i point at my brother I go you so i'm not mom and dad are doing anything with this <laughs> look, look at, i'm looking at cam my brother and he'll give me a pen and paper so i wrote down get me out of here and I show him and I go, yeah, bud, make it happen. Yeah. But I'm hooked up to tubes and hoses. I got one eye that's wonky as hell. 
little did I know I'd be in the hospital for months after this. But like, I thought I looked around me like this looks, this looks expensive. Let's huh. get out of here while we still can. But, but thankfully he didn't, you know, heed my advice or my requests. And we stayed in the hospital for months after that. But it was, uh, this was like everything, man. Like I was, I was, I was not a casual hospital attendee here, man. I was like debilitated to the max. Mm-hmm. I've never, I've never been in obviously that, that type of situation before, but imagining like what that would be like after waking up, you know, after four months of being in and out and, and, and like realizing the situation that you're in, what is that moment like where you, you sort of like first fully come to realize the situation that you're in? Because I imagine there's like this like moment. I mean, you, like Jared was saying before you sign this paper and you go into the surgery and you have no idea what the outcome is going to be. And it's certainly, I'm guessing not that the situation that you ended up in that you're expecting to sort of come to. And so what is that moment like yeah. like real coming to realize yeah. that i like i don't want to sound glib but like it does it feel like and, and i'm not trying to be funny here like like does it does it is it is it at all remotely similar to waking up out of like a really deep deep sleep that you've had you know or like or like if you ate an edible and went to sleep and you wake up and you're a little bit gro- you're like groggy you're like where the f- where am i Wh- oh fuck and then like things come to or is it but you're also realizing the worst thing in the yeah, world yeah 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 well i was being told what had happened to me and i kind of realized like this is not good this is not a good situation to be in here right i couldn't talk right so like it took me weeks to get my voice back but you know i really was very intentional about the way i thought about this so I knew that my mindset was everything here. The brain injury didn't kill you. So it's what you think about it that matters. There's this lovely line from Epictetus that I use in my, my talks. It goes, it's not what happens to you, but how you react to it that matters. It's not what happens to you, but how you react to it that matters. That's a stoic um, through line that I use in my talk. And it's kind of, it's not what happens to you, but how you react to it that matters. So I got to be intentional with how I approach this rehab. So like you're very distraught, just like discombobulated, but like you got to hold on. Oh, well, at least this or at least that. I'm not, I'm not dead. I'm still here. I'm still here, man. And like, <laughs> so I couldn't talk, right? So the way they got me talking again after the, after the, after the hospital, like after being in the coma was she took me down to the park and she sent me in front of these people across the park and she goes down. These cries across the park don't think you're good enough to talk, Dan. They don't think you're good enough to talk. Whoa. And I just go, I found my voice. <laughs> I'll spare you as profound as I yells across the park. But needless to say, it was uh, emotional. But like she found out what motivated me and she hammered that. But like that was so key for this whole operation was find out what motivated you and just kind of lean into that full steam. Like just don't don't judge the motivation. It's not good or bad. But it works to get you going. And you tell me I can't do something, bud, look out. I'm coming at you full steam. Those poor people across the park probably didn't know what was coming at them. But, like, uh, I laid into them pretty good and let them know I could talk. And I'm good enough talking. How dare you think this way about me? And But it's um, it's super confusing, super discombobulated. I was, you know, I was out of sorts for, like, I was in the hospital for months, right? Like, and I was trying to figure out what to do with this. And my friends would come and visit me. Thankfully, I had lots of friends in London. 
And one thing they always said was, you know, you're always pretty positive and upbeat about the situation. Like it was never a chore to come visit you. And I was like, I really wanted to portray that I was okay with this and I was going to build back better and, and kind of more take it on the chin. I had lots of friends come to visit me from like Vancouver and, and around the world. And every time they come visit me, I'd always want to show them that I'm improving and I'm trying here. I wanted to show them that like, I'm going to fight through this. Like I'm, I'm better than this. Like I can, this is not going to keep me down. And so every time they came to visit me, I would work really hard to get back to walking again or, or walk without AIDS. And I could you know, do this or like again, wheelchair in 30 minutes, not 45 and show them I was improving and trying here. Right. That was kind of a part of this for me. In terms of like, <clears throat> I'm trying to, to like that, that mindset is, is, um, really admirable. And, you know, it's funny cause like I, I, I read a lot of Stoic philosophy and try to, you know, put some of those tenets into practice in my own life. And I find that there are moments in my life where I, I would look and like, I go to therapy every month. And, and so there are moments in my life where I'll find myself feeling anger building up, for example, and, and I'll, I'll become aware of it and I'll, I'll go, okay, I'm just, you know, how am I processing this and try to step back and appreciate the way that I'm reacting to the situation. Not like you're saying, like not what is happening to me, but how I'm reacting and that I have control over that. And, and I'm sometimes really proud of how I respond in those situations. And then there's times where, you know, I'm driving my car and somebody cuts me off and I get road rage and I'm like, what the fuck? Like, fuck yeah. this yeah. person, the piece of shit, whatever. And I get really pissed off. And then, you know, minutes later, I look back and I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe I got uh, yeah. like that. That's I'm so crazy. Loser. <laughs> and I guess the point that I'm trying to make is that there are like moments in your life where like it feels easier to apply yeah. those stoic philosophies and tenets. But like, I imagine that one of the most difficult times would be like mm. coming to in the situation that you're in and finding yourself in a situation like that and going, holy shit, this is bad. This is, this is tough. And so like, what is it that, that you feel like, you know, what, were you like that before this experience happened or does, is this sort of a byproduct of going through something so difficult like this for you? I think I've always had an element of this inside me. Like I always wanted to put people wrong and like show them that I can, I'm good enough to do this. And I think there was definitely an element of this inside me, but this kind of stoked the fire a bit more. Um, Cause it, like you said, this isn't easy to do. None of this is easy to do, but it's simple. Whereas it's not easy to always be like, not chipper, but like look at the positive, but like, Control, controllables is an expression I say, right? Control the controllables. Can you control this? Yes, no. If yes, then worry about controlling it. If not, then punt it, man. Don't worry about this at all. Like, it's not your fault. You can't deal with this. Don't worry about it. But control the controllables is key, and it's not easy, but it's simple. It's another key one to bring on board with this as well. Like, what I mean by this is, it's not easy to do the thing, to learn how to walk, talk, and smile again. It's not easy, but it's simple because I want to walk. I want to talk. I want to be able to smile. When you make the choice that you want to do it, then just, just do it. It's just going to take time. Maybe throw this back one step forward, but like you made the choice to do this. So like, just, just, it's not going to be easy, but it's simple hmm. to make that choice. And if you want that? Then yes. If no, then, then punt it. Don't worry about it. But like, I want to walk again. I want to talk again. I want to smile again. So I decided that, I'm going to chase this down. And it was 
harder than all hell to do this, man. Like it was, it was so frustrating. It was so difficult, but like, I knew that I got to hold on to my mindset above anything else. The mindset is the most important thing because whether you think you can, you think you can't, you're both right. Right. Like it's so forward saying, but like, it's, um, the mindset's so key, man. And like, yeah, now I don't really get too worked up about stuff that's be maybe seemed as minor before, but like, if I can control it, then I worry about it. If I can, then hey, man, no stress. Yeah. Life's bigger than these trivial things. Are vegans actually unhealthy? Does cannabis ruin your sleep? And why are so many men taking testosterone supplements? I'm Mitch. And I'm Greg. And we're the creators of the popular YouTube channel, ASAP Science. Every week on our podcast, Side Note by ASAP Science, we explain the science behind a controversial subject with recent research, up-to-date studies, and ridiculous stories so you are entertained while, bam, simultaneously learning. We're here to make science make sense. Download Side Note by ASAP Science wherever you got your podcasts i just want to take a moment to kind of like uh like acknowledge but also sort of also sort of uh like just examine a little bit how fucking wild it is that the nurse you know that the, like one of the nurses that were that you know you were under their care her her decision to put you in a wheelchair take you out in public and like almost, almost like shit, like not shame you, but like, like, like sort of poke the bear. Like that moment of going, hey, those people over there, they think you're, they, they think you're worthless. They don't think you can fucking do something as simple as speaking. Like to them, you're a loser. So are you going to do something about it? Or are you just going to continue to be that loser? You know, like that, like, first of all, that is a fucking bold decision by a nurse. And, and it makes me bold, wonder, like, like man, bold decision, so bold. And like, how many times did she do that with other patients in a similar situation where it worked or where it didn't work? Right. So like in your case, it worked. And that's amazing. And she would have been like, fuck, yes. All right. That's exactly what I was going for, because I could see that this guy, like maybe there was something about you or maybe she heard something from your mother or maybe like there was something that she saw that she was like, I feel like if I if I do this, if I poke the bear that way, he's going to step up to the occasion. He's going to fucking make it work, make it happen, which you did. And that's amazing. Um, but can you imagine if if it didn't work, how that might feel? You know, like how you might just like, suck. like, yeah, you'd be like, oh, Oh, like I just, I'm not, I can't do it. You know, like, I feel like that would, that would suck so bad. But, but the fact that it worked for you is amazing. And I, and I am kind of curious about, because to me, you know, I like to look back at the things that I've experienced in life. And I like to think about in particular, the experiences that I've had that at the time unknowingly would go like those experiences would go on to alter the rest of my life. And I don't know for sure, but I'm, I kind of feel like that moment with that nurse could have been one of those moments for you. And I'm wondering if like, if you think that you would be on this, this journey, this track of like trying to, you know, trying to like elevate your speaking career and, and putting such a like deep emphasis and focus on, 
on, you know, convincing others to like see resiliency in a way that you have seen it. And, you know, like this, uh, you know, you're, you're like, you're calling. Do you think you would have this calling if it wasn't for that nurse taking that moment to take you out in the wheelchair and, and kind of like challenge you to, to, to show up for yourself? It's a good observation, Jeremy. I've never thought about that actually, but I think it could very well be because I like, I really, I talk about motivation in my talks quite a lot and how about my motivation is came from this two for the road attitude, which in the UK means fuck you or up yours. You know, this two for the road, you ever this done? Like there's a great Noel Gallagher picture where he kind of gives this to the camera and just jogs on. But my motivation has been like this F you attitude, this kind of fuck you attitude. So like, you don't think I can do this, bud? Well, watch me. Yeah. And that probably, I understood that that was motivated me when she did this to me because I realized I responded this way to it. I've always kind of had this, to be honest. And I think I've always kind of had that a few attitude, but it never was so clear until she did that. Yeah. Um, I've been very conscious now to try and transition that away from that FU attitude because, um, I don't know. Did you guys see the, see the last dance? No, Michael last, uh, oh no, no, mm. I, I didn't see it yet, but I, I mean, I heard it's incredible. I also heard that he's ruthless. <laughs> he's ruthless, dude. He's yeah. ruthless. Yeah. But all right. So I won't draw that conclusion with you guys, but like, like Go for it. No, go for it. I mean, because I'm sure there's a ton of fucking people that have seen it. Yeah. And 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 yeah, go for it. Because I, I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Okay. So yeah, like I I watched the Last Dance, and I'm I'm not comparing myself to Michael Jordan. Okay, I'm not comparing myself to Michael Jordan. <laughs> but I'm not not comparing myself to Michael Jordan, right? <laughs> like, yeah. See how he motivated himself in that movie. Like, hey, nice nice game, Mike. Torches the dude for like 40 points the next game. Like, I'm gonna pick on you. I'm gonna go right. Because you thought I couldn't do this? Yeah. I got that in me in spades, man. You tell me I can't do something and I will burn, I will bend the fucking world to make this happen. Like, I will bend the world to make this happen because you don't think I can do this? Watch me. My motivation was housing that for a long part of my recovery and that got me so far. I'm not saying that I'm, I'm, I'm giving up on that motivation, but I'm just saying I'm trying to transition it more now to helping people, service. When I help you achieve what you want to do, I, I can maintain that motivation well past success time when you're proving someone wrong once you prove them wrong the motivation dissipates like it was never there like poof mm. well like the michael jordan documentary is so interesting because you see michael talk about these people that like burn him on to do great things back in the day and he's still bitter and jaded and old crotchety man michael jordan basketball player of all time right but he's a bitter old dude now and he's like hella jaded and bitter and i don't want to be that guy man like i don't want to yeah. be you yeah. I got a bit of you inside me, but I don't want to be you at this stage of my life. So I want to transition this to like now service and motivation is transition to service, which is quite key. Mm. But I'll be honest with you guys, like that, that, that you don't think I can do this cool, but I'll torch you. Mm. Like that's still very much part of my vibe. And like, I, I can't, you can't unlearn, you can't undo that. That motivates me. That's my button. That's my trigger. Mm. One thing that, I, that I'm curious to know about is, um, you know, this, uh, this experience obviously took a heavy toll on your body physically. Um, and you know, you go in, you have, I, I take it that they, they remove the cyst. Um, uh, and then, and then, and then of course you got to deal with like the hemorrhage and the, the, what happened with that afterwards and the coma and all that stuff. So like what, um, when you, when you gain the ability to speak again, 
Was that step one? And like, what was step two, three, four, five? Like, what was your recovery process like to get to a point where you were able to go home and cook for yourself and clean and, you know, do your daily activities and, and like live a, you know, a quote unquote normal life, if you can say that. Yeah. yeah good question, Jeremy. Um, so yeah, first step was talking to him. That was the first one I got off there. Uh, that took a long time to do. And then I was in a wheelchair for a number of months. So like it took a while to get going for that. I was, I had to wear a splint one hour a night to stretch out my leg. What had happened was in the ICU with the intensive care unit, my leg had frozen at an angle. So it was, it was atrophied, the muscle had atrophied. And in order to get it back, I had to wear a splint on my leg, which is like a cast. And I'd wear this for one hour a night and it was horrifically painful. Like it was so painful. I'd bite my arm at the end of the hour trying to distract myself from the pain. But it would eventually stretch it out. I want to share one story with you, Jeremy, and your listeners. Yeah. So the first night I wore the splint through the night, no issue, no stress. This will be easy, I thought. This will be easy. The second night, after 20 minutes, it was painful. After 30 minutes, it was dreadful. After 40, it was unbearable. We took the splint off. It was like a rat's nest had been descended on my leg like a torture chamber, and it was biting, clawing, scratching, burrowing my way through. It was horrific. But I told the nurses, tomorrow we're doing this for an hour. I'm a walker and I can walk and I'm going to walk. So we got to do this for an hour. The third night, they wrapped me up, gave me the clicker, the nurse call button, set a time for one hour, and they go for patrol of the Wolfson Ward. Now, the Wolfson Ward is an L shape, so short on this side, long on this side. And they leave me in that hospital room. And the hospital room, as I'm sure you know, Jeremy, is, is stagnant, sterile. Fuck smells yeah. just like, ugh. Yeah. So clean, so like so perfect, Clorex formed everything. And they leave me and they go for control of the Wilson board. After 10 minutes, the leg's painful. After 20 minutes, it's dreadful. After 30, it's unbearable. The rat's nest is back on my leg and it's expanding exponentially every minute. I start passing the clicker back and forth to distract myself from the pain. Now, if I got double vision from the brain injury, Jeremy, which means I get the pleasure of seeing two of you gentlemen, which means I can't see this clicker much at all. As the pain ratchets up, my throws get more enthusiastic. So, inevitably, I miss the clicker and it drops on the floor. I look bad. I see the clicker there lying on the ground. The solution to my problem is right there. But if I drop down and grab the clicker, I might break my arm. I was skin and bone at this stage, right? I lost all the weight from the uh, incident. Incidents. And I thought the drop from that height might break my arm. So I figured that's not a good option. So I'm trying to undo the splint, but it's done with the ankle, not at the hip. I can't reach it. Right. Help. Help, I yell. But the ward of the Wilson's in L shape. So short on this side, long on this side. They're the far They can't hear me. I decided I'm going to risk breaking my arm. I figured it was about a 50-50 chance of me breaking my arm. Point flip. I'm going to risk breaking my arm to grab the clear because the splint needs to come off now. And this way I can see what I'm going for. So I drop down off the edge of the bed and I crash down in heat. Guard sale, blankets, wires, cable, it's all a go. The arm, the arm holds, Jeremy. It holds. And I hammer the clicker. Expecting the nurses to come bursting into the room to come to the rescue. They kind of strolled in five minutes later. What are you doing? The oh, they asked me. Let's not worry about that. I told them, let's get the splint off my leg, please. And I'll tell you all about it. 
It's not what happens to you, but how you react to it that matters, right? I learned two lessons from this experience while I'm telling this story. The first is let's not pass the clicker back and forth. That's a bad idea. <laughs> With double vision, that's a real that's a shocker, bad idea. The second lesson was let's do the splint up at the hip, not the ankle. That way I can do this going forward. These are better than yesterday kind of vibes. They're not mic drop learning moments, but they're better than yesterday vibes. And if I can stack these learnings on top of each other, I'm better than yesterday. I'm happy to say the rats and never, never experience this again. But man, you make that mistake one time and you never make them again. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> yeah. It was horrific. And that was an example of the splint, right? That's how I got walking again. We're in the splint one hour a night after this. That's an example of how difficult and how painful it was to wear the splint. And I'd wear that one night and I'd go for walks on the Zimmer frame. Move up to the frog, move up to naked walks. And I would gradually build myself up to walking again. But this is Jewish, yeah. difficult, strenuous. Like it's just like all encompassing to do this. I'd rehab during the day and I'd wear this place at night if I could. So yeah, it was a long journey back to this. And like it was, it took, uh, I was in the cross for maybe, oh, I'm going to get this wrong and it's going to bugger this up, but probably two, three months. And then I was in Wolfgang for three, four months. Wow. Yeah. I mean, regardless, it was, you know, not a short period of time. Mm -hmm. On these naked walks, were the nurses like imploring that you put your clothes back on <laughs> or like, how, how, how was that working? Yeah, that's a good question. So naked walks are less raunchy than they sound. You're walking without supporter aids. I was walking naked. The term kind of stuck. It was long road down to the naked walks, but man, I was just happy to be moving. So I called them naked walks. I was having fun here. I'm having gamification of this. Like life's about well, for me at least, life's about playing and having fun. Like if you can make it a if you can play, you can do almost anything. So naked walks were an example of like me having fun walking, right? I moved up to naked walks from the Ferrari. Now, the Ferrari was a four-wheeled walk that you kind of waddle quickly on. But it was in Ferrari Racing Red, so I called it my Ferrari, and I could go much faster than Zimmer frame. So I kind of ratcheted up the naked walks. But I'm having fun here. I'm enjoying myself. I'm making – this is a wild experience. Yeah. I'm going to try and enjoy myself a bit more here. Can I share one more story with you, Jeremy? Yeah, yeah, please. Uh, so learning to walk in Tune Broadway – now, Toon Broadway is in South London, what they call up and coming, which means it's dodgy as, a bit grimy, think like loud sirens, drugs, gangs, dirty, busy. It's a full on experience. I'm walking with a cane and I'm walking with an eye patch. I'm Bambi on ice. I turn the corner onto Toon Broadway for the first time, immediately get slammed into by someone. I stagger back a few feet. Someone scurries past me on the right hand side. I thought I was done with the rats at this stage. Someone had been stabbed on the sidewalk. I'm walking around this dude. I'm thinking, this is a wild place to learn how to walk, man. After a few days of this, I was thinking, this is the worst place to learn how to walk in the world. Can't they see I'm trying to walk here? Can't they see I'm trying here? And then one day, my perspective shifted. Maybe this isn't the worst place to learn how to walk in the world. Maybe this is the best place. If I can walk here, I can walk anywhere. Yeah. Now, Tune Bro didn't change, right, guys? It's still up and coming as far as I'm aware today. From the worst to the best in my mind, my mood reflected that. What are you looking at in your life that you're convinced is the worst? Convinces the worst. Can you turn down the suck a little bit? Is it that? Or can you shift your perspective a little bit to look at it differently? That's an example 
how I shifted my perspective, learned to walk into Broadway. And I'll tell you what, that shift in perspective made all the difference. When you look forward to your walks, you're not skirting them or like resenting them. You make gains, man, because every collision you take is like, you're making me better. Thank you for the adversity. You're making better at this. Look, that's an example of how you can shift your perspective on like these little simple things that may seem like nothing, but that made all the difference, man. Mm, yeah. I like in terms of, um, you know, in, in the, in, in saying like this, you know, you used to see this as the worst place to walk, but now it's actually probably one of the best places to walk. Speaking of best and worst, um, I'm kind of curious about, you know, the fact that as someone who's, who spent time, you know, full-time living in the hospital for quite a, quite a while, um, you, you know, you spend, you're obviously spending a lot of time interacting on a day-to-day basis with healthcare professionals. And one thing we've heard a lot on the show in the past is, you know, things that, um, things that healthcare professionals do really well. And then we've heard examples of yeah. things where healthcare professionals kind of like drop the ball. Um, and I'm just curious if you have any experiences that stand out to you, like, you know, things that you experienced where you thought, wow, that was really amazing. I mean, I, you know, I feel like that nurse, taking you out and, and berating you is, is, is one of those, one of those examples. But like, do you also have examples of things that didn't really feel that great? I got two examples. I'll start with the worst and I'm with the best. If that's okay with you guys. Yeah. So the worst memory I had in the hospital was getting my eyes checked in an optometrist. She drags the and she goes, track with your eyes, please, but don't, don't move your head. And I go, well, I can't track it that well because the double vision, but when that goes away, that should be just fine for me. And she, oh, that's not going to go away. Pardon me, I say. Because well, it's not going away. But I never heard this before. Right. So she's telling me I got television life kind of have blase, like you should know this by now. But like, I had never heard this before. And I felt like I got gut punched. And it took me weeks to recover from this because she was so blase about the whole thing. So like like a, a patient, not a person. And that was like, I tell this to, to the, I used to be interviewed by these, these doctors, these um, newcoming doctors. And I tell them, this is an example of the worst experience I had in the hospital was that story there because I was treated like a, like a patient first, not a person. Yeah. Having no empathy, no, like no consideration for my feelings on this. Like, what if I never heard this before? You're telling me this like, so blase, like, Oh, that's not going away. Like, Dude, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. And now I know that, like, just like, oh, you should just know it's not going to go away. It's like, well, this is my life. This is my life, man. This is, I can't track this down because I got double vision and that's for life. Now, the best memory I had in the hospital, the best memory I had in the hospital was meeting my GP, Jens Foles, for the first time. Shout out Jens Foles. What a great doctor he is. He goes, I'm waiting there with my dad in the waiting room and there's a whole bunch of people there. I've got a cane, I've got an eye patch. I'm hanging out waiting. He goes, Dan McQueen, over here. And I'm walking over to him. He goes, Dan, in front of the whole waiting room, right? He goes, Dan, I read your file. My file was like two of these, right? It was quite a big file. I thought you'd be a wreck. And I go, Jens, I'm sorry to disappoint you. Now, that is something I like sharing because it just shows how quick-witted and brilliant I am. <laughs> but it goes to show you the relationship that Jens and I had was this, this kind of dry, quick, back-and-forth zingers. 
that made life a bit more tolerable to deal with. Like, I'm not sure about you guys, but like, you you show me respect as a person. You can tell me any news you want, but if you treat me like a like a patient first and then a person second, like, hey man, I got no time for you. Like, don't don't tell me anything bad. Like, screw you, man. Screw this is this is my life. But by showing respect first and having a bit of joke, like I can go dark with humor. I can go dark with life, but like a person first, a patient second. And that's the key thing for all healthcare professionals. You got to take that on board. I'm really, uh, yeah, I'm really grateful that you shared that, like, you know, and both sides of it, because we, we do, we have like a lot of healthcare professionals that listen to the podcast. And, and I do think that more often than not, we hear the bad more often than not, we hear like, for, you know, we, because we speak, speak to so many people who have been through the system, to people who, who are sick, who have been sick, who have been through trauma. And a lot of times when they come on the show, you know, we'll hear stories of like, here's how, here's how this doctor fucked up. Here's how this doctor was a complete, you know, knob. Here's how this doctor was this, that, which totally like valid. We got to hear it. I want to hear it. But, um, but I feel like, you know, with a lot of like healthcare professionals that listen to the show, it, it might be one of those things where it's like, ah, this, like, we're not all like that. You know? yeah. I wish like, yeah. I, I, I would like to hear like the positive stories. And it is nice to hear like the, that, although you had that shit experience, you also had a really wonderful experience that, that will stick mm-hmm. with you. Um, coming, coming back to that, that shit experience where the, you know, the optometrist was like, you have double vision just for my own clarity. Like when you say double vision, what does that mean? Like, I'm trying to, you know, like I, I like when I cross my eyes, I, I feel like that's not it. Like I feel like that's just, that's because like, you said double vision. I was like, I'm cross my eyes and see, and, and I was like, that's not double vision. That's just I can't see shit. Um, what, like, what do you mean by double vision? And, and is there a way for us to kind of comprehend what that, what that sort of looks like? So that's a good question, Jeremy. I had surgery actually on the eyes two months ago to try and correct it. It made the eyes a lot better but it didn't fix it. We're going to have surgery in the other eye maybe in a few months' time. What double vision is, is that essentially each eye is an extension of the brain. So brain injury happened, and now each each video is playing separately. They're not joined in the brain in one image, but one of them has got a massive tilt. So I've got kind of like, it's not one and one, it's one and one. And so I see both images at the same time, but I'm not sure which is the correct image. Mm. and every direction I look, I used to wear an eye patch. I used to wear a contact lens to block this, but I got so frustrated by the lack of periphery vision that I stopped wearing these. So double vision is, um, it, we think it contributes to fatigue quite a lot because I'm dealing with two images the whole time, right? Right, yeah. I mean, that would like exhaust the brain, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, I get two of you guys, so that's pretty special. But <laughs> besides that, it's you know, it's not the best, but it's... And- um. You know, you kind of learn to do it. It's like everything else in life. Like you learn to adapt, man. I don't know. Like right. it's not ideal, but you learn to adapt with it, if that makes sense. And like in that adaptation, you know, are you like, for example, um, uh, you know, if I fuck up my, if I fuck up my, my low back, like my, you know, my, my right SI joint goes out of whack and I got, you know, a few weeks of dealing with that, my body's going to, my body's going to like do things to, to compensate and and use other muscles more than it typically would so that you know it it eases the discomfort it eases the pain it eases the 
you know, the, the thing that is making me feel like offset. Yeah. So like, is your smell really good? <laughs> no, no, that's, that's not where I was going, but, but I am curious, like, do, do you do like, do you happen to do things like in it, like inherently do things that you're not even thinking about to try to offset the, the double vision, like, like by, you know, turning your head certain ways or, or like looking at the world in, in ways that you probably wouldn't be doing if, if it wasn't for the double vision. Yeah, for sure. So I actually just got my eyes checked yesterday at an optometrist in North Vancouver. She was a phenomenal optometrist because she like went through the tests and we, my prescriptions changed quite a lot. These glasses are two, but apparently my right eye is now 275. But she was saying that when I was looking at the, the machines that my head would be tilted to the side because I'm trying to offset the double vision. And I kind of inadvertently do this because that's how I see straight. I'm trying to straighten in my mind what it is that's proper and I want to get one of you. So I'm tilting my head right. You notice in the interview today, I'm looking a lot on this side, right? Yes. Yeah. I see better this way, right? This way I can't see that close up here. So that's why I kind of turn more this way. Yeah. So it's like, and that's, I'd say subconscious. I'm just doing that because I can see better that way. Right. It's kind of become habitual, but I'm trying to get, we're going to have surgery in the eyes, hopefully the next month or two. I'm actually going to the eye doctor tomorrow or next week to try and get a prism fitted in my glasses to see if that can fix it and to measure how the results are after the first surgery. But I can move my eye a lot better now on the right side, which is great. But it's uh, something that is very much ingrained in my, in my vibe. And like, I just kind of learned it as, as bad as it sounds, like just deal with it. Like it's yeah. just, like, yeah. you just kind of accommodate, right? I don't know. Well, like you said, you know, it's, it's not in your control. So punt mm-hmm. it. Dana, uh, I'm curious, what did you do for work before um, before this happened? Yeah, so I worked at Hootsuite as a launch specialist or implementation specialist. So post-sale, I would be the person that's responsible for setting up your account, train you and your team. And I would do this in London, right? This is all in jolly old London. So I work with EMEA, Europe, Middle East, and Africa, which is a whole variety of clients. So think like Southern Italy to like, Saudi Arabia to like South Africa to Kenya, like that's a wide scope of clients you're dealing with, with a variety of like use cases. And like some clients have got five seats and they want their CMO on there. It's like, well, is that the best allocation of seats? Maybe not. Like you've got five seats. This is like a small thing, but it's because of the respect of the, I'm the CMO, I should be on there. Mm-hmm. So I got to deal with a lot of different clients and learn how to deal with people from different cultures and, and backgrounds and stuff. And really exciting job, really fun. It was kind of like a rock star position where you kind of deal with uh, clients for a short period of time. So you get them kind of the sweet spot, right? Like the, the post sale stoked on life, yeah. happy with all the stuff you're doing, showing them how to do things and train them up. It was a great job, but I actually lost that job this past summer as part of a corporate restructuring with Hootsuite. Okay. So you're, of, sorry. So, so you, you maintained the job through, um, your recovery and like, how does that work? Cause I I'm curious. I think of like, like if I was to find a tomorrow I had to go in for brain surgery and then my life changed forever from that, I would, there'd be a lot of things that I'd worry about in terms of like, you know, my career, my relationships and all these things. So I was just curious, like how, you know, how those things end up being in, in your situation ended up being affected through this process. So with your career, like, were you able to keep that, going forward. I also lost my job this week, so I wouldn't really think that much about my job if this was to happen tomorrow, but, but, uh, 
Brian's oh, yeah, freaking the fuck thing. out right now. <laughs> it's okay, buddy. You're going to be okay. Yeah. Oh, my God. The podcast is doing all right. <laughs> no, it's a good question. I think, like, Hootsuite's got to be commended for how well they treated me during this process. Like, Hootsuite was heads down phenomenal. My mom often says the doctor saved my life, but Hootsuite allowed me to get my life back. Mm. They were accommodating. They allowed me to come back to work two days a week, two half days a week. And let me tell you, I was not a contributing member the first few days, first few months. Um. I was reading emails. I was going through stuff and just like barely hanging on with this stuff, stuff. And, and they helped me ramp back up at a pace that was comfortable for me and super accommodating for this process. It was great. Mm-hmm. When this actually, when I got back to work, if you guys don't mind, I'll, I'll go back and describe a bit more what happened in the recovery. Um, I got back to work for the first few months after a year of rehab and rehabilitation. I was back at work for two months. And I had a second setback after working for a year to get back to work, learning how to walk, talk, and smile again. Vocational therapy, going to work for two months. I was found unconscious in my flat by my mom. The shunt in my brain had blocked leading to hydrocephalus or water on the brain. This is very rare and happens in less than 10% of cases with uh, brain shunts. I was rushed to the hospital and had to undergo emergency brain surgery for the second time. I woke up in the hospital bed the next day hearing the beeping sounds of the heart monitor. Beep, beep, beep. And what happened? What happened? Well, Dan, you had a second brain injury, emergency brain surgery. We got the blockage, but, you know, we had to go brain surgery yesterday. I'm like, well, what do you mean? All my progress is washed away? Hey, well, we got, we got the blockage. But I've been working for a year to get back to work. And, and in an instant, again, that's washed away. Like that's yeah. gone. And that was the lowest point for me, this whole process. Like the first setback, man, that was tough. But the second setback, when you've been working for a year to get back to work, is insane. Yeah. That's when the mental fortitude comes to play here. Like it's not what happens to you, but how you react to the matters, right? I had to foster relate like a mental mindset of like, you know what? You know how to get back to this. But it took a week of sure pity spiral where I just was, woe's me, woe's me, this isn't fair. But you're right, it's not fair. But no one cares, man. And no one's coming to save you. You got to get through this on your own. So it's tough for me to say because people are like, well, it's not, you got to be a bit more compassionate. But well, yeah, you do. But like at the same time, you got to get yourself out of the situation. So like that second setback, man, was the depths of the human experience where I was like utterly shocked and and, and shaken to my core with what was possible, what I experienced and, and how to get back from this. Like it was so difficult. So that was a bit of a wrench in the whole recovery process. Yeah, no doubt. I, yeah. Like, do you, do you, um, I mean, I like, we're coming up the time here and, and I do have like the, you know, the, the typical like final two part question that we asked, but I'm curious to know, uh, you've been through a lot of like medical trauma and, you know, we, we, we've been, we've been, touching on trauma a lot, especially over the last like two years, like since COVID really popped off, like we've been covering trauma pretty regularly. We love trauma. Month. We love trauma. And, uh, you know, we, we like, we had a, we had a really like lovely conversation with Gabor Mate recently. And, and that was like a really oh. eye opening experience talking about trauma with him. But as someone who's been through like a lot of medical trauma, um, you know, speaking to you, it sounds like you have a really good like grasp mentally on like what's going on and, and how to 
how to take the situations that you're in and, and mentally focus them in a way that's healthy. But like, do you, at any point throughout this process or even like now, like, do you, do you, do you go to therapy? Do you have a therapist? Is, is, are these types of things stuff that you talk about with, with a therapist or, or is this all kind of like coming from yourself? Well, let me, let me be like pretty frank about this. Like I had a lot of help to get back to where I'm at today. Like I, I had a ton of help. Mom and dad came out from Vancouver to be in London. Friends came over from Vancouver to visit me in London. I had an emotional support system that really helped buoy me up. And that is not lost to me at all. Like I'm very much aware that I'm the product of the support and love I had. And if you don't have the support and love that I had, maybe you don't get back to where I'm at now. Maybe you can't climb back to where I'm at now. And that's why I want to give this talks because I want to show you the roadmap. I want to show you what's possible. The ascent is what I want to show you. The depths of destruction I want to show you what's possible when you climb back up. Um, in terms of therapy, I don't go to therapy now. I've just recently joined a men's group, which is mm. sort of like therapy light. Um, but it's a lot of motivational videos on YouTube, which sounds a bit cheesy and blasé, but like it's kind of helped me. Like guys like David Goggins, like Joe yeah. Rogan, motivational stuff. Like I'm pretty big into that stuff. And taking ownership for your own stuff is what I do. And I kind of suffocate. I suffocate the uh, the negative aspects of things and I just kind of push forward with stuff. And it's, mm. you tell me I can't do something and I'll prove you wrong. Like I, will, I will bend the world to prove you wrong, man. Yeah. That motivation that that Kiwi nurse brought up, man, like that, that still plays today, right? That's a real motivating factor for me. Mm. So I don't know if that answers your question. No, it's great. Yeah. What What would you say is the biggest thing that your traumatic brain injury uh, took away from you? Took away from me. I think the soft skills, the social soft skills that I had, they were quite tuned, quite adept socially before this. Now I'm a bit more blunt and brash and I can stumble into stuff. And before I realize it, I'm like, well, I've said this, I shouldn't have said that. The social soft skills are something I'm still tuning. And that's something that takes a bit more time to come back. But I learned through trial and error. So I got to fall down before I get back up. Hmm. So I'm very much the product of fall down seven times, get up eight which is the subject of like, I fail my way to success. I'll say the wrong thing seven times and the eighth time I'll say it right. But I'm trying here, man. I'm more, I'm more consciously showing that I'm trying now than I did in the past before life came very easy to me. Like I was very socially adept, you know, girls, jobs, friends. Like I was quite good at all this stuff. Like I was quite good at talking and, and making it work. I wanted to make it look like I wasn't trying hard. But I was trying hard behind the scenes. But I wanted to make it look like I didn't try. It just kind of came to me, right? Now it's quite the opposite. I'm like, I'm I'm busting my tail, and I don't really care if you see that because I'm working here. Mm. You'll never hear me fail for lack of effort. You'll never hear me fail for lack of effort. Now it's like I've got a regimented routine that I get up with. Like I wake up early, uh, go for a workout, go to the gym, cold shower, end the shower cold, meditate. Like I've got a routine. I'm armoring up here to get myself ready for the day. And like, just find your practice and dive into that because you can do this, man. It's not a, it's not a death blow. And you're telling me there's a chance, like that's still a philosophy. It's not what happens to you, but how you react to it matters, right? Mm. And I thoroughly believe that. That was a rant and a half there, Jeremy, but I think that's give you something to talk about. Do you like, before I get to the second part of that question, the, um, you know, the soft social skills, do you think that you sort of lost those because of the 
the like hardship that you that that you like experienced with the the, the traumatic brain injury, or do you think that that's like actually a d- direct result of the the effects of something that happened in your brain that sort of took that out of you, and now you have to almost like relearn, like you would have to relearn how to speak. Yeah, that's a good question. I think like it's. With the brain injury, you're traditionally much more impulsive. And I think that that's definitely been the case for me. Right. Yeah. Also, like, just say stuff. I'm also just like, there's a bit of like, I don't give a fuck attitude. Like, I'll just say something like, well, whatever. I'll throw this out there. And like, as soon as you're like, ooh, I shouldn't have said that. That's a bad thing to say. And you can't take it back. Your words are very powerful. So I'm not sure if I lost the ability to do that or maybe I'm just out of practice for being in the hospital for so long. But I feel like now I'm failing again a lot of stuff that I've learned in the past. I'm failing once and I'm learning now, which is good. But it's like I need to fail to know what works and what doesn't work. So it's yeah. like I'm learning through trial and error, but maybe I learned this lesson before, but I'd forgotten I learned the lesson before, if that makes sense. Yeah. What would you say is the biggest thing that your experience with a traumatic brain injury has given you? Oh, new lease on life. Like I just like stress like i don't really get stressed that much these days like i stuff happens like well it's bad but it's not that bad remember it's it's not as bad as you think it is i've got um i've got my left leg my left thigh is covered in tattoos now it's covered in tattoos because that's the leg i wore the splint on so every day i see that splint or that the tattoos on my leg and i'm reminded that like hey man remember that time of your life remember when you did this stuff like that was pretty cool mm-hmm. you can do this stuff I see that every day, but like that perspective of like, Hey man, you can do hard things. If you just put your mind to it and like do small incremental bits, I call that, that going to work, chop wood, carry water. So whenever I like, I get a bit frazzled, a bit like distraught, a bit like distracted by shiny objects, chop wood, carry water, get back to work, get back to the process. Like speaking career, not going off the ground, like stuff's kind of moving a million miles a minute. But, like what can I control? Chop wood, carry water, get back on the podcast train, like do that. Follow these emails, send some invoices, chop wood, carry water. Mm. Um, so that's a million answers again right there. But like I've learned this brain injury has given me a ton. It's taken away a lot, but it's given me a lot to, to kind of think about and mull over and kind of focus me in a sense that I didn't have before, if that makes sense. Mm. Well, Dan, uh, I got to say, it's been a real pleasure uh, getting to talk to you about the uh you know the hardships that you've been through but also the ways that you've been able to take what you've been through and turn it on its head and make it uh make it something that kind of drives you every day and 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 also nice to see that you're taking that and trying to give back and and and, uh inspire people to be better versions of themselves so thank you thank you so much for taking time in your schedule to sit down and chat with us this has been great Mm -hmm. hey boys i appreciate you and i want to say thank you so much for having me on your podcast i think uh yeah, I was talking to a friend of mine. I just seen all of them just never working on the show, and he reminded me of like he introduced me to you guys back in the day. I'm like, oh, that's pretty cool circle here. But uh, yeah, pleasure to be on the podcast, boys. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, awesome. thanks, Dan. Well, there you go, folks. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. As always, we are coming at you Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And if you are a fan of the podcast and you want to support the podcast, there's a number of ways you can do that. 
First of all, you can leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. We love reading them. You can simply rate the podcast on the Spotify mobile app, if that's where you're listening. Or if you want to join the conversation, hop on over to our Discord. The link is in the show notes of this episode. And uh, we have a lovely little community over there of sickos and non-sickos all hanging out, chatting. And uh, hey, you could even help produce the podcast over there if you want. You can, again, find that link in the show notes below. Sick Boy Podcast is produced and co-hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Taylor McGilvery, and Brian Stever. The show is managed by Jeffrey Lonis over at Talent Bureau. The sound design of this episode is brought to you by Donovan the CPAP Morgan. And of course, the theme music is from the band Take Part. That is it for this week. I'm Jeremy, and this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.